good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. Hello. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I've been coming to this church for the last couple of years with my beautiful wife, Ella. There we go. That's some brownie points in the bag already. Um, and I've got something to confess, actually, to you guys today. Um, I was born in the 1990s, and that, that means I'm a millennial. Uh, oh, exactly. And according to culture, um, as a millennial, I'm addicted to the internet. We should... Yeah. Addicted to social media. Um, I'm addicted to technology. I'm also addicted to uh, box sets to get over my stress. And finally, obviously, addicted to avocado. Most of these are actually true as well. Um, so when I read an email from Neil a few weeks ago asking me if I wanted to speak on the topic of work, it kind of made me chuckle. Um, what could I bring a millennial in their 20s that hasn't worked many different jobs, hasn't had many different experiences, hasn't had a long career? Um, in many ways, I've lived up to that millennial stereotype, often dreaming of a better existence at work that's totally unachievable, wanting more recognition, uh, wanting more pay, and wanting to work less hours in the week. Um, I tumbled out of university into the great work pool or ocean that is called London, and I had no idea what I wanted to do, only that I enjoyed working with youth and young adults, and that I enjoyed helping people in the process. Another reason that Neil's email made me chuckle was this time a year ago, I was unemployed. I had just walked out on a job that brought me to my knees. I was burnt out, tired and jaded of trying to figure out work and a career on my own. Um, I'd gone into work with enthusiasm and vigor, and a little over three years later, I was tendering my resignation, asking for it all to stop. And that's why I think this whole situation is kind of funny. Uh, but maybe that's why. Because it's not ever about us, is it? Our worthiness or our goodness. But it's about God the Father and his plan of redemption brought about through his Son. It's so scandalous that it redeems every aspect and corner of our lives. Even the nine to five. Even being squashed up next to someone's armpit on the London undergrounds, um, or even the 10 cups of coffee that we need every day just to stay functional. Um, let's pray. Yeah, Father, we welcome you here, and we thank you that you are here already. Um, we just ask that you would expand our hearts just to hear from you this morning. Wherever we are at, whatever has been going on, we just lay that aside now. And we just make space for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians 4, 1 to 7, uh, reads, What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the, time, uh, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. 
Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. This morning, I want to talk to you about when work doesn't work. This last year has been a crash course for me in this subject, so I'm going to attempt to offer what little experience I have as an encouragement to you all, wherever you are with God, whether you're walking with him or wrestling with him. Essentially, this passage outlines that we are sons and daughters of a father, and that father cares so much about us that he will intervene in our brokenness to show us our true identity. The Bible is full of imagery about God as Father stretching all the way back to the garden. Um, And this passage really illustrates God's desire for us. His desire is for our position or identity to be defined by him, to be grounded in him, not to be anchored in the many facets of life that offer the the false promise of security. Going to follow three strands through today's talk, um, orphan, son, and heir. So verses 1 to 3, I'm going to read them again. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, a child in some translations, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. In both Jewish and Greek cultures, there was a definitive coming-of-age ceremony where a boy or a girl stopped being a child and started being an adult, essentially becoming an heir. In Roman custom, there was no specific age when a son became a man. It happened when the father thought the son was ready. So when Paul uses the phrase, time set by the father, it shows that he's thinking of that Roman custom more than the Jewish or the Greek. And in this Roman custom, the child, a boy or a girl, would give up something symbolic like a ball or a toy to show that they were putting away childish things. What Paul is identifying is that our maturation and our position is a very central theme to the father. Our position is something that happens instantly when we come into relationship with Christ. But our maturation shows that our development into sons and daughters is something that takes time. It's a process, and that time is set by the Father. Even though we are born heirs, there is a time of coming into full understanding of what it means to be a child of God. Until this point, we can effectively live like slaves. What I mean by this is in verse 4, it says, we must receive the spirit of adoption to sonship to walk into this fully. So how is all of this relevant to work? Well, work is one of the many arenas in our lives that God uses to draw our attention to the world and us and the world, and also to draw our attention to us and him. For many of us, we will work 40 plus hours in the week, and we will work for 40 plus years of our lives. Um, And it's inevitable that a lot of our perceived value will get wrapped up in this arena of life. Reading further through verse 3, Paul writes that we are under slavery to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What does this mean? Um, Well, he uses an interesting word in Greek called stoichia. I don't know. Um, It just sounds Eastern European whenever I say it. Um, Maybe someone can correct me afterwards because I'm going to butcher this. 
Um, but essentially, this word Stoichia describes these elemental forces. Um, and Stoichia was originally a word to describe an order of things, like a line of soldiers, order, discipline, training. And by the time of Paul's writing, it had come to mean ABC, essentially the order of the universe. We might call it karma today. If you do something good, good things will happen to you in return. Paul writes here to argue against this Stoichia way of thinking, because that dictates doing the right thing and deserving something in return. However, the story of the Bible shows that our good cannot justify us under grace, and our bad need not condemn us. Grace has come to replace this way of thinking. We are given position as sons and daughters, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but because it's been freely given to us. Interestingly, Stoichia also crops up another 13 times in the New Testament, notably in Hebrews 5 verse 12, where Paul is addressing Jewish Christians. Um, and it reads, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. You see, the Jews had also fallen into this elemental thinking through their dedication to the law, so that they would be made right in the eyes of God. When reading any of the Gospels, it becomes evident quickly that there is a serious conflict between the elemental truth of man, known as law, and the elementary truths of God, known as grace. Although the Jews were heirs to God's inheritance, they were in fact living no differently to slaves, trusting in their own work and action above trusting in God. And as verse 1 states, this is still a danger for us today as Christians. This time last year, I could understand the whole tension between law and grace in my head, but it really hadn't landed in my heart. I just left a job uh, working with 16 to 24-year-olds that were unemployed, um, who many had been out of prison, or they were kind of battling loneliness, mental health crises, um, low confidence. And in all honesty, it just completely was too much to handle. Um, other colleagues of mine had left and been signed off um, from work, and I could sense myself approaching to that, that place as well. Um, and I wanted to jump before I was forced to leave. So I crashed out of work into an uncertain future, no plan of what was coming next. Um, and my heart had really been flattened. That was the kind of feeling um, by the kind of needs of other people around me. And I was definitely living from that ABC principle, um, as Paul explains in this passage. I was confused and bitter as to why my efforts to do good and kind of work for a charity and kind of try and change things up had led to this end. But um, God, God began to use this sort of time to actually reframe some things. Um, and it was really this theme of sonship that began, began to come out. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is one that probably we all know very well, but I'll just paraphrase for anyone that hasn't uh, read it before. Um, essentially, a son seeks his inheritance from his father early. His father's still alive, but he really disrespects him and says, look, can you just sell off half of your stuff so I can like, take my money and go? And his father agrees and, and gives him this vast amount of wealth. So the son goes off to a distant land, flaunting the wealth, enjoying it on many different things. Can't imagine what those would be. Um, and makes lots of friends in the process, and life is just brilliant for him. 
Over time, this money dwindles, and he gets to a point where he runs out of this money, he loses his friends, and he, get, he comes to a point where he like, has to work with pigs um, and is like, literally eating the food of the pigs just to survive. And it's at this moment of like, being at rock bottom that he has like, an epiphany. The servants in my father's house are eating, they've got a roof over their head, they've got clothes on their back, and look at me, just covered in rags. If, you know, he thinks if I can go back to my father and beg him, maybe he'll take me back as a servant. So he hatches this plan and heads back, and his father sees him from a long way off and, and comes running to him. And he kind of bats him away when he starts making all these excuses, and he, and he puts his robe on him and essentially bestows the position of son back to this guy. The detail of the story that I'd often overlook, though, is that there is another brother. The older brother who sticks with the father, uh, doesn't kind of claim his money, and he's kind of quite faithful and resilient. Um, and he doesn't receive the return of his brother in the same way that the dad does. He's, he's bitter, and he's twisted. Um, and it says in verse 25 of Luke 15, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God revealed to me that I've been that older brother. I'd been slaving working from my own strength, and I was bitter that I'd crashed out and come to this point. Comparison with others had seeped into my thinking, and I was bitter that it seemed that it, life just seemed easier for other people than it did for me. Essentially, I'd approach work from an orphaned heart, believing that I was on my own, that my hard work and toil would prompt God's blessing rather than believing that he was a good father. I was disarmed by the actions of the father in this parable. He comes out to the older son, which was a big thing because the older son was disrespecting his father by staying away from the celebrations. And he comes out to him not to scold him, but to say, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. You see, it's never about what we do because everything we have is already from the father and everything he gives us is a good gift. I love this quote by a guy called George MacDonald, who was one of the mentors to C.S. Lewis. Um, and he says, the hardest, gladdest thing in the world is to cry father from a full heart. The refusal to look up to God as our father is the one central wrong in the whole human affair. The inability, the one central misery. And what this means to me is that the centerpiece of our story is also the most assaulted part. The identity of son and daughter is the most assaulted narrative of your life. Can you imagine what Satan felt when he saw the intimacy of the father in his son 
when he saw the intimacy of Adam in the garden with God. And if the enemy can steal our sonship or our daughtership, our identity can never take root. Son. Verse 4 of that Galatians passage. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. What does Paul mean when he says, but when the set time had fully come? Well, in Ephesians 1, he also says, um, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us from ad- for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The timing of and restoration of relationship between us and the Father was no plan B. It was God's great pleasure. It was his will. And if we drape the religious language of this passage, the chat about predestination, which Neil will cover in the future, I'm sure, um, we really get to the essence of who God is. He's Father. And before uh, before the fall and sin entered, it was God's great joy to associate as Father. God intended and willed that he would be our Father. It's the first line of the, um, the daily prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And it gives him great pleasure to do so. And if we're to find the life that he intended, to lead well, to understand our calling, and to to work in a way that we don't burn out, we really need to understand this central theme in the story of God. You see, it's all about intimacy and God's restorative work in our lives. It's not about productivity or functionality. And that's what the working world beats into us relentlessly. That's what our culture beats into us, that A, B, C. And it's a real challenge to avoid cohabitating with law rather than grace. God will raise the orphan self in us, not to spite us, but to heal us. And even as I stepped out from work this time a year ago, I felt like my plans continued to be thwarted. I'd uh, managed to get a job working part-time in a school, uh, doing some exam invigilation. It was all right money. It, it would have been sort of enough to keep us ticking over, um, and it would just give me the opportunity to rest, recharge, and think about what was next. And just after leaving this paid role, I got an email through from the school, essentially saying, we can only offer you half the amount of hours that I'd planned for, uh, which was a bit of a knock, because at, at this point, my, our margin had kind of got a lot smaller, um, and it just felt hopeless. It was like, what have I done? I've just walked out and work without a plan. Um, but God was really in that. Uh, whereabouts have I gone? Oh, I'm further on than I thought. There we go. <laughs> um, in hindsight, this was real kindness from the Father. He'd stripped away the, all the kind of comfort of my orphan plans, and he got to the heart of the matter. Behind the burnout and the tiredness, I was struggling with a loss of status. As a working professional, this status forms a lot of the way we kind of present ourselves to others. It's one of the first questions that blokes seem to ask each other is, what do you do, all right? Um, 
and what, what, for me, it was like, oh, well, you know, I work with young adults. I help them get back into work. You know, it was a thing of real pride. It was, it was like, yeah, this is good. Um, but the shame I felt was hard, and I had nothing to lean on. Um, I kind of had to go to God, really. There was nothing left to do. You know, it was a real underlying fear of what would come next. Um, will I ever get a job again? Don't want to talk to Ella's dad because he's probably going to think I'm not looking after his daughter properly. Um, all of the pretense had to go, and this opened a way for intimacy with God, a chance to see God for the father that he promises to be. Tozia says he waits to be wanted. In my experience, this proved to be true. After exhausting all of my options, I needed and wanted God as father to intervene in the confusion and the mess. We inherit Adam's sin and separation from the Father, but Paul says we inherit the restoration through Jesus Christ. Verse 6 of Galatians 4 says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. No matter what time or season of our lives, we've been given the right and the authority to call out to God as Father. Not just to kind of speak quietly and hope that he will listen, but to cry out to him, like a small child does when they're in distress or pain. It's like an innate response to reach out for mum or dad at that moment. And Abba means daddy. It's intimate. It's close. It offers us a place to come when the world doesn't make sense. But God wants to be there with us in the confusion. So how can we begin to see God not just as Father, but as Abba? So many of us, myself included, live to a different beat. We celebrate self-sufficiency. Go it alone. Make it yourself. He's a self-made man. She built that company from scratch. How can we even begin to start our journey towards sonship or daughtership? Well, we are told the Spirit of the Son has been sent into our hearts. The Son, meaning Jesus... The Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Simple theology. Um, Jesus was a living example of how to live life in step with the Father. He made some bold assertions. He said that I and the Father are one. When you see me, you see the Father. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And just before washing his disciples' feet on the night before he was crucified, he said, I've come from the Father and I'm returning to the Father. Bill Johnson says, he led with a servant heart, and he led with the heart of a king, because he knew he was his father's son. Whatever Jesus is doing at any moment, he is modeling what it looks like to live in the reality of sonship. His sustenance, his motivation, even the words that he spoke, all came from his father. And he shows us that God is a father who serves He's a father who draws close and will literally wipe away the crap from our feet. He embraces mess and he gets on his knees and washes it away. We don't have to be clean and acceptable as the law would suggest for us to come near to God or for him to come near to us. He has come to be where we are to show us that we are not alone. And the Holy Spirit's role in all of this, the Spirit of the Son, entering into our hearts to witness the truth to our innermost being. Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit himself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And the Holy Spirit in us reveals to us the extraordinary relationship that Jesus had with his Father and the love that the Father lavished back onto him. This inner revelation is the coming of age mentioned at the beginning of this passage in Galatians 4. And James Jordan wrote in his book, Sonship, A Journey into the Father's Heart, which I read recently. Um, It's quite a nice eclectic picture, isn't it? Um, (laughs) um, He basically argued that we need three separate revelations um, for the personalities of God. Our revelation of the Son comes when we realize we need forgiveness, that we need a Savior. Our revelation of the Spirit will most likely come when we experience the Holy Spirit through hearing from God, hearing his voice, or seeing a miracle, or healing happen, or even just that inner peace, that inner knowing that God is with us. We very rarely talk about a revelation of God as Father. And this revelation starts with sonship or daughtership. Jesus is our compass. He points us towards the Father, but having a compass doesn't mean that we know actually how to use it. Just like having Jesus doesn't mean that we naturally mature in our walk with God. Maturation is a decision to go on an adventure with God. It's an attitude where we go from son to heir. So heir, the final bit. Verse 7, you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. The definition of an heir is a person who inherits or is entitled to inherit the rank, title or position of another. So according to this verse, we have been elevated from slaves to children. And then this beautiful progression continues where we continue from children into heirs. And as heirs, we inherit God, who is the greatest inheritance of them all. Well, excuse me, but I'm quite happy just being, you know, on the sidelines, no longer a slave, just living quietly, only calling on God if I need him. Um, But sons are never slaves in their father's house, and slaves are never sons. Jesus illustrated this in the parable of the prodigal son, where the son was determined to return to his father as a slave, but the father would only have him back as a son. And if this verse is true, then we have a God who is father by his very essence. He isn't content with us living quietly and self-sufficiently, like the plans that I've made. (laughs) He he wants to get to the heart of the matter. He waits to be wanted. And he wants to initiate us so that we can come into the reality of what it means to be an heir, so that we don't have to live like an orphan anymore. And how do you grow an heir up? How does that person become who they're meant to be? They must be initiated. And a lot of my experience of initiation into being a son to God has come in this arena of work. As previously mentioned, I'd gone to a hard place. Um, I was pretty much burnt out. And God had like got to the heart of the matter and reminded me that no matter how the world looks at you, you are a son. God had my attention. So when I sensed him say, stop looking for work, just leave it, and I'll, I'll bring something to you because I want to show you that I have your best, I was intrigued and petrified at the same time. You see, I'd always coached the young people that I'd work with to apply for as many things as possible, to cast your net wide, to network, and make the most of any opportunity that comes back. So turning off the daily check-in of Indeed and charity job and the like was a bit weird. Um, 
and I didn't know how long I'd have to wait if a job would ever be coming again. But I felt convicted that if I was really a son that God was kind of trying to get to, that he wouldn't leave me in the lurch. A week or so later, a friend, an old colleague from my previous job, sort of mentioned this other charity that had just started up called West London Zone. Um, it was relatively local to where I was working before, and they were looking for someone to coach a group of 16-year-olds from year 11s in a local high school um, for one day a week. Coaching is a skill that I've developed in my previous job, and I was actually completing and the coaching accreditation in the time of being off work to bolster that skill. So I thought this would be a good opportunity, if nothing else, just to kind of explore. So I spoke with a contact at West London Zone about this opportunity, and it quickly became clear they were looking for somebody full-time to work with these children in schools. I was like, okay, this is good. It's quite similar to what I've done before. Is it just going to lead me to the same place again? You know, work in front line. Um, are you wise, Matt, to even jump back into this? As I was looking around their website, I also found on their vacancies page a manager role. Uh, and this is something that I'd always been intrigued to, to do more of as I kind of progressed in my career, but I didn't have any experience as a manager. Um, I was excited, and I felt that God might be in this, but I was also paralyzed by fear. If this was, a, this was an opportunity of God's making, I could sense that, but also I could feel the negative self-talk diminishing my faith. Why bother submitting an application to be the manager? I had little experience. I was already unemployed. I was sure to fail. And in this spiral, I sensed the father catch me and challenge this perception. Matt, if you are son and heir, what does it matter if they say no? What bearing does it have on your true identity and your position? I've not given you a spirit of fear and timidity. So I went for it, and I applied for this job out of a position of son. And this is something that I'd never done before. So they responded, um, and by some sort of miracle, they sort of invited me for an interview. So I was like, okay, this is cool. Um, but in that moment, a fresh wave of like doubt and fear just came in as well. I can't do this. They're going to see right through me. This is going to be a humiliation. Um, but God caught me again in that moment. Go in and be yourself. Then if they offer it to you, you know it's because they want you and not a perception of you that isn't authentic. Okay, I can do that. I can, I can be me. Uh, the interview itself was pretty grueling. Uh, they all had like these laptops up and they were just tapping away, not, not making much eye contact. I was like, oh man. Um, but I was able to like, walk away in the comfort that I'd been obedient to God. And normally I'd walk away from an interview like racked with a bit of shame and a bit of, oh, I should have done that differently. Um, whereas this time I just felt peace. Like, it was in God's hands. He'd arranged the whole thing. So whatever happens, it was up to him. As Ella said, um, I could have gone into the interview and just pooed on the desk, but it doesn't matter, because if it was in God's hands, it would still be so. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Lovely. Um, a couple of days later, the phone rang, and it was one of the interviewers, his tone of voice was quite flat. You know when you like second-guess these things, you're like, okay, yeah, I haven't got this. So you're like preparing yourself for, for the inevitable letdown. Um, and then his like, voice changed, and he was like, yeah, we really liked you. And you know, we interviewed people who had more experience, but we want to go for you, because we think you're the right person for the job. Um, and in that moment, more self-doubt and fear came in. Um, and I like, smoothed it over on the phone, but inside, like, I was going crazy, like, I can't do this. 
So the next morning, I like woke up and went to Wimbledon Common for a little walk, trying to like just get God to tell me what to do because I was like freaking out so much. Um, because you know what, I hadn't had to really work for this. Like it just plopped into my lap. I just sort of said, "All right, I'll give it a go." And all the doors just started opening. It, I felt like somebody else like deserved this more than I did. Uh, I was unemployed. I crashed out of work. Why should I just be given an opportunity? But I was living from that like ABC again, like do good things and good things will happen to you, rather than I'm a son and God wants to provide good things for me. Um, So I was taking these questions to God, like what if I'm a failure? What if this all goes belly up? There's so much unknown here. And Neil had given me a picture a couple of weeks before of like, myself and God like in this kind of wood paneled room with like all these maps kind of looking over these maps and a sense of both God and me like having choice in this and I sense God say you've got choice here I'm with you regardless and then he gave me this picture and I'm talking a lot about hearing God seeing pictures and that that might sound weird um, but that's just kind of like how I hear from God and people hear from God in different ways but the Bible makes it clear that God wants to speak that he's not silent that he is close um, and I had this picture of like white water rafting in this like little dinghy and going down these rapids and like getting mouthful of water and like sprayed and like feeling like exhilarated but also really fearful at the same time. And I felt like God just said, if you want this, I will be with you. It won't always make sense and you might fall out of the boat a few times, but it's all part of the fun. So I, I said yes and I stepped into more initiation and challenge. And God has been faithful to this picture. It certainly hasn't been plain sailing. It's been mayhem at times, but there's been a good level of challenge. And the arena of work has begun to change for me. Before, I was an orphan, and I was striving, like the rest of culture, it can feel like at times, to like, earn a place and to earn an inheritance, to live by that ABC. Um, and I still have many moments of self-doubt, fear, and anxiety. But I'm learning that I can turn to God as Father, and he will be present, and he wants to be present. But I'm a son and an heir before being a manager, before being a husband, before even having a ginger beard, I don't know. Have I arrived? No. Have I got more to learn? Of course. Perhaps what I have learned is to accept that maturation is a process, and my parting encouragement for you all is that wherever you find yourselves today, whether you are employed or unemployed, in the job of your dreams or dreaming to get out of your job, that you have a father and he cares about you more than you could ever know. He waits to be wanted. And God wants you to understand what it means to live like an heir and not like a slave. What we're going to do now um, is just going to play a song in the background. And I've got three questions that are going to go up on the screen behind me. Um, Just take this time for however you you want to reflect and respond. Um, It could be that you just read through the questions and think through them. It could be that you want to include God in that. It could be you just want to close your eyes and go to sleep. Uh, I won't know if you're sleeping, so that's fine. Um, But yeah, we're just going to spend a bit of time, and then Ella, my wife, is going to come up as well. We're just going to respond a little bit more after that. Um, So yeah, just take some time.